Hallelujah. God's good. Amen. Okay, I, I like to sit down sometimes. If I'm going to go into more of a teachy mode than preachy mode, I sit down because I behave myself if I sit down. So, um, and I've got a lot of stuff that I want to try and sort of cover. Uh, but if you all turn with me to Isaiah 56, verse 7. Yeah, Isaiah 56 and verse 7. Everyone got that? And I'm reading this from the ESV. And it says, uh, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. For all peoples. Amen. And so this is what I felt God wanted us to wanted to look at today was my house shall be called a house of prayer. And there's a lot. Prayer is a massive subject. Um, I mean, it really is vast. It's you might think, well, sure, it's just talking to God. It, it's, you know, I don't know. It'd be like saying uh, piloting a submarine as like the, the principle is easy enough. You get in the submarine and you go down and you come up, right? But actually, the mechanics behind it and all the knowledge you have to have to do that is, is immense. And it's the same with prayer. There is a massive amount of detail in prayers, intercession. What does that mean? Supplication. Um, then there's praying uh, in the church, with the church, praying in the spirit. Then there's being in the place of silent prayer, me- mental prayer, contemplative prayer. There's so many different types of prayer. And, um, and, you know, and there's a whole load of schools of thoughts behind all that. But one of the things that I feel that God uh, wants to make his church aware of, um, now so I preach, appreciate that I'm speaking to you guys, but also um, the people that listen to these podcast stuff, it, it, it's, it's going out to the wider church. And I, and I feel prophetically that the church needs to come to a place of prayer because uh, well, over the years, I've studied many revivals, many, a lot of revival history, some 600 years of revival history, which, you know, take, takes a lot of time to get through it. But guess what? One of the most common things or, or, or things that happen preceding a revival is prayer. prayer. I mean, wow, you know. And, uh, and I know some people have like, well, you know, I don't believe in revival. You know, we can all be revived and stuff. And there's truth in that. We, we can all be walking in personal revival every day. But there's a difference between an individual being on fire and when the whole church comes. And and not only the church, but when God pours out his spirit on the church in a very significant way. I'm going to share something, um, for example, uh, what happened in 1857 in the second Great Awakening in America. And I'll just share some stuff about that a little bit later on, which shows you. That it's not just even Christians corporately being on fire for Jesus. This is something way beyond that. This is something powerful from God um, because of the saints' prayer that does things that just should not happen in the natural world. Okay, uh, so we'll look at that. So, firstly, so God wants His house to be a house of prayer. Jesus obviously said this, referring to the temple. Um, but obviously, the heart of God for His church, which is the body of Christ, is that His house shall be a house of prayer. Amen. Now, we know that we are all living stones 
neatly fit together, as Paul says, to make the temple of Almighty God. Have you ever wondered what that temple looks like? It's a big shiny thing called the New Jerusalem that comes out of the heaven. You see, the foundation stone uh, has the name of the 12 apostles written it. The, uh, the entrances into this one and a half thousand mile high, wide, deep cube uh, has the, uh, the names of the patriarchs written on it. But those individual living stones that come together to form that temple, each one of those stones has got your name on it because you are a part of those living stones that form the new Jerusalem. Hallelujah. So uh, that's exciting. Where is that in the Bible? Just read it. It's there. Okay, so... So, my house shall be called a house of prayer, Isaiah 56, 7. So, first of all, I want to explain a little bit about the temple uh, and just go, just give you a bit of a backstory. So, we all know about the Mosaic Tabernacle uh, in the wilderness, which was the tent. Uh, it had a big outer court, and then you had the main tabernacle itself, which had two compartments. You had the uh, holy place, then the most holy place. In the holy place, you had the bread of the presence. Mm, I wonder why it was called Bread of the Presence. And then you had the Jewish menorah. Uh, and then before the veil, you had the little golden altar of incense. And then behind the veil, you had the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the manifest presence of God. Okay? Now, we know from Hebrews that all of these things is really a shadow and a prototype. Well, not even a prototype, just a, sh- a very rough shadow and outline of the reality which is in heaven. And we'll get to that in a little bit. So, things that happened on the earth. Now, you've got to understand, right, that what went on in the tabernacle and then eventually the temple, these were prophetic acts. But they're not just prophetic, they were mirroring what is actually going on in heaven right now. Okay? And I'll prove it to you from scripture. Um, And so, everything the priests did is revealing stuff that's going on in heaven right now. Um, And so they did certain things at certain times of the day. So for example, at 8 a.m., they would get a lamb and they would tie it to the altar. Then at nine o'clock, there would be, the incense would, this is when in the era of the temple, the incense would go up and then the first lamb of the day would be slaughtered. Then at midday, at noonday, the lamb would be, a second lamb would again be tied to the altar And that lamb then would be sacrificed at three o'clock. Now, for those that are starting to think of your gospel, you think, well, Jesus was handed over to be betrayed, etc. Obviously the night before, but then he was handed over to the priest and he was given over to be crucified around about nine o'clock in the morning. He was then attached to the cross at midday and at three o'clock he was sacrificed. So Jesus is, how Jesus went about, you know, when he went, was presented and on the cross, etc. followed the exact sacrificial system because remember what went on in the sacrificial system is really just a is a shadow and a forerunner of that which the messiah himself would fulfill but not just him but what is actually now real time going on in heaven as well now during the times when the temple was destroyed etc what the early jews did is that they even though they lost the sacrificial system but they continued the prayers at that time as well all right, so they did it at nine, they did it at 12, and they did it at three. And there's other things that they did throughout the evening as well. And you had really early morning prayer as well. And, uh, and then when the, sacrifice, when the temple was rebuilt the second time round, they continued on with that tradition. And so 
Jews always prayed at those hours, 9, 12, 3, etc. Then you read in the book of Acts, says how that the disciples came to, or the apostles came together to pray at certain hours. Like the guy at the beautiful gate, you know, gold and silver I have none, but in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That was at 9 a.m., I believe. Then you have the apostle Paul. It's, it, it's talking about he's looking for a place to pray. They find the place to pray and they meet at three o'clock in the afternoon, etc. Because these were established patterns of prayer. Now, you could say, well, it's Jewish. Well, no, because now the, the you know, people like the apostle Paul, he, he saved, right? So this is, and so this became an established practice for then for the early church, and it never stopped, and it's still going on today. Evangelical charismatics don't do it anymore, but the traditional churches still carry on. So you have the greater hours, so they're like the early morning prayers, and you have the lesser hours of nine, twelve, and three, then the greater hours again in the evening. So morning prayer, evening prayer, or morning song, even song, and then the other hours throughout the day. Now. Why do you think, why, I mean, I'm going to wrap all this up towards the end, why all this stuff is important. Because a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, if I do certain things at set times throughout the day, isn't that being religious? No, it's called being disciplined. Yeah, there, there's a big difference between being religious, which is a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof and doing it for all the wrong reasons and actually just being disciplined. Amen. 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 Any disciplined Christians in the house today? One, two, three, four, four. Okay, five, six. Any others? Any others? Okay. All right, so these things are important. So remember that the Old Testament temple and tabernacle is a shadow of, a, of what's going on in heaven right now. Now, I don't know if you know this, but as you read through the book of Revelation, you will notice lots of things. So as, as I've done my commentary on the book of Revelation, those that have listened to it, you'll notice in chapters four, five, and eight, it gives you a glimpse of what's actually going on in the worship in heaven. Has anyone been to a church with lots of incense and bells and smells? Yeah? Uh, anyone got a problem with incense, bells and smells? Uh, someone's put his finger in his ear. He's not, not so sure. <laughs> okay. Well, guess what? In heaven, there's plenty of incense going around up there. So if you're not into incense and all that kind of stuff, well, I've got news for you. You're going to be doing a lot of it when you get to glory. Hallelujah. And it's going on right now. But what's exciting is that all of the priesthood on the earth in the Old Testament days, they were mimicking what is already going on in heaven. Now, I've heard lots of people talk about angels being warriors of the kingdom and all these kind of things, but I've never heard anyone tell me that they are priests. Because if you read in the book of Revelation, they have a priestly function because they're presenting to God on golden bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints, and they're, they're crushing incense in it to make the prayers, I guess, more stronger as the smell comes up before the Lord. They are, so the earthly priesthood is mimicking the heavenly priesthood, which up until the time of Christ, and still now, was angels. But now, we're a part of that royal priesthood. So we get to be priests as well. And that's why later on in the book of Revelation, you see the hosts of heaven being with the saints up there as well, joining in with that heavenly worship. Uh, so, okay, let's have a look at some things in Revelation then, shall we? You alright, Trace, looking bored? <laughs> She's like my boredometer. See how bad it's going by looking at her face. <laughs> okay. Um, 
So when we get to Revelation 5, so I'm going to, um, I'm going to look at from, where am I going to look at from? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go from verse 7. Uh, let's go from verse 6. It says, and between the, th- oh yeah, that's what I've got to say as well. Now, as I said, in the, in the Old Testament um, temple, you had the outer court, then you have the holy place, then the veil, then the most holy place. Well, guess what you've got in heaven? In heaven, you have the holy place. And there is the sevenfold spirit of God. And what does the sevenfold spirit of God represent? The menorah that sat in the holy place. Then you obviously have things like the bread of the presence. And then you have the altar before the veil. And so in heaven, you have this big golden altar where his incense is continually offered up it, up on it. Sorry. And then you have the sea of glass, which is like a veil, which separates, in a, so to speak, the holy place from the most holy place. And in behind this dome of this sea of glass is the throne room itself, where God the Father is seated on it. His son is acting as high priest, so he's not always sat next to his father. He's kind of coming in before the father and interceding. You also have the 24 elders, etc. And obviously, father is the, and the son is the manifest presence of God as well, you know, like the Ark of the Covenant. So everything you saw on the earth is really just like a kind of a cardboard cutout of the heavenly pan. I just thought you had a picture up there that everyone's looking at. I was like, oh, is there a picture? But no, there isn't. Okay, so you're with me so far. So 1 Peter 2.9 now says that we are a royal priesthood. So now all of us come into and, and our privilege is to be priests. Now, if Christ is a high priest, okay, which means the most highly, the most lofty, the most exalted priest, what the Hebrews would call the Kohen Haggadol, which means the uh, highly lifted up and exalted priest. Okay, if Jesus is a high priest, then, then we are the priests. And if you think what his ministry is, day and night, he is coming before the Father with intercessions and supplications, etc. Then how much more do you think his body, which is the mystical body of Christ on the earth, which is the church, how much more do you think the church should also be enjoined with a high priest in offering prayers and supplications and the incense of praise and worship and prayer before our God as well? Do I get an amen? Amen. All right. Hallelujah. Now, as I said, so I'm going to look through a few things here in Revelation because I haven't read them yet, have I? Uh, So let's start from verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and amongst the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. If you want to know what the 24 elders are, etc., either come to our Revelation study on Monday or listen to it, my Revelation course online. And you're going to it in great detail. Each holding a harp. Oh, bit of praise and worship. Okay. And golden bowls. Has anyone heard of the expression harp and bowl? Yeah, well, in fact, someone when I when I was well, I've been a Christian for a long time, but someone came to our church once, and she was really into harp and bowl, and she said, "Hey, hey, have you ever done harp and bowl?" I thought it was a pub, the harp and bowl. Was that, that down the road or something? She said, "No, you idiot. It's to do with prayer. It comes from Revelation." I was like, "Oh, okay." So, holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. These are not metaphors. This is really going on right now in heaven. There are 
harps being played by angels, praise and worship, loud cymbals. Okay, if you're not into loud worship music, sorry, it's going to be loud when you get to heaven, very loud. Uh, Have you ever been in a room with a hundred people praising the Lord? Have you ever been in a room with a thousand people praising the Lord? Have you ever been in a room with five? It's deafening. So you imagine myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angels, let alone all the saints that are there as well. Man, it's going to be loud. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Woo! Yeah, it's going to be great. Have you anyone seen the film? No, Spirit's saying don't go there. I'm not going to go there. Okay, let's leave it. It would have been funny, but he doesn't want me to talk about it. Uh, so anyway, uh, where are we at? Um, then verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And heard every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped him. Now as you go through this, if you've got a good cross-reference Bible, it will show that these things that the angels are saying are mostly made up of bits of psalms. In other words, there is liturgy in heaven. Uh-oh. Isn't that that kind of weird religious stuff? Liturgy. If you look at the angels, if you look at, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, if you look in Isaiah chapter 6, you look in Revelation, they're always quoting scripture, but it's done in the context of a worship service. It has its place, it has its moment, and they say it. And they say it together. It's not some random thing that we just, oh, oh, I'm going to say this. It, it, it's, it's set and it's ordered as the temple on the earth was set and ordered. There is set worship and order in heaven. Right? It's not random charismatic craziness. But there is some random charismatic craziness in heaven, hallelujah. But there is structure. So if you're random crazy charismatic that doesn't like things that goes on in the Church of England, for example, I've got news for you. <laughs> you're going to be doing that in heaven. And if you're one of those people over there but you don't like the crazy charismatic people, well, I've got news for you. It's going to be a bit like that when you get to heaven as well. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be absolutely glorious. Hallelujah. Now, there's more stuff we can go into. I said, if you look in Revelation chapter 4, chapter 5, and verses 8, chapter 8, sorry, there's loads in there as well. I've got something here. Where is it? Um, Yeah, let's look at chapter 8, verses 1 to 4 of Revelation. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So again, you know, the Jewish menorah represents the seven angels, which represents the seven churches. Hey, how can that be when the Jewish menorah was in the Old Testament and there were no seven churches? Because it's eternal and it was always a part of God's plan. God got the Jesus, it says in Revelation 4, is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. You are living in something that was already pre-planned before this earth was even conceived. Now that raises a lot of questions, but that's God's department, not ours. This whole thing has been planned from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning from the end. He is the author and perfecter of our salvation. It is mind-blowing. It goes beyond anything you could even begin to imagine, how that the devil has been used for God's plans and purposes to bring about his glory and his goodness and kindness and mercy, etc., etc. It's mind-blowing. 
Anyway, where were we up to? So when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. So again, this is an angel doing this. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose up before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it onto the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now, hopefully you can see straight away how the angels are involved in a priestly ministry in heaven. Okay, a lot of people don't realize that, probably never even seen that. But there you go. There it is in black and white. And so what the early priesthood were doing in the days of Moses and the days of King David, etc., they are literally prophetically mirroring out what's actually going on in heaven now. And that's still going on in heaven now. How do you know it's still going on in heaven now, Chris? Because the apostle John, when he was taken up to heaven after the after Jesus had died and gone to heaven himself, you know, probably some 60 years previously, the, the temple worship didn't stop. It's still carrying on. The prayers of the saints are still going up to heaven. They're still doing their thing. Why is this important? Because when we understand the relationship of heaven and how the church on the earth should be imitating what is going on in heaven. This is why, by the way, in the more traditional churches, they have set liturgy and they have incensing stuff. It's not because they're trying to replicate the the temple. If you know your church history, it's they're trying to replicate what's going on in heaven. They want to mirror on the earth what's going on in heaven right now. And therefore, that's as Christians in our daily life and in our prayer lives, that's what we should be doing. On Thursday nights, we do, we do our harp and bowl thing, which isn't to do with the pub. And, and we, do, uh, we do this time of prayer, worship, intercession, and we have the antiphonal singers that take the prayers and sing them back. All this stuff is from Scripture. All this stuff is to mimic and to try and replicate what's going on in heaven. Not for the sake of it, but because it's the heavenly pattern. And if that's how God has orchestrated it in heaven, then why don't we sink into that and do it on the earth? Because Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer. But the church traditionally and typically isn't very good at prayer. If we're honest with that, this is not to, this is not one of those whack you over the head, make you feel bad because you don't pray enough sermons. If, this is I'm just listing some facts. They often say that the prayer meeting is the Cinderella of the church. Because nobody wants to go. Okay. Now I appreciate some some prayer meetings are really boring. Okay. But come, uh, you know, Wednesday and Thursday night, you should come to them. They're really exciting, aren't they, Joe? Yeah. Joe loves them. Paul loves them. As all they have, Paul over there, he loves them. It's, it's good fun. And but the thing is, we're trying to replicate something in heaven. But but when I when I look throughout church history, I, I notice there are patterns, and so. Back in 1857, okay, in the second American Great Awakening, there was this guy called Jeremiah Lamphere. Anyone heard of him? Okay, now, basically, um, there was all kinds of stuff going on. Now, this is a few years before the American Civil War, so trouble is brewing in America. Things aren't going well. Uh, the banks also, just after uh, Jeremiah started his prayer meetings, they collapsed as well in New York. So there was all kinds of problems going on uh, in America at the time. So Jeremiah Lanfear, he, he started these prayer meetings. He felt by God say, hey, let's just meet at lunchtimes, every lunchtime during the week, a businessman's kind of prayer meeting. And uh, 
you know, we'll, we'll meet, have sandwiches, meet at, I don't know what time it was, let's say 12 to 1, and that's it, and then go back to work. I think it started off with six, is that right? Six people to start with. Then the next meeting it was 12. Then the next meeting it was more, then more. Then the banks collapsed. And then, man, it became an overnight sensation. And it became so packed in, a, in New York City that every, I think it was every theater, every place where you could hire to open up was utterly packed. There was, it was, it, you couldn't get into these places because thousands and thousands and thousands of people over New York City were in anywhere they could find and they were praying for God to do a move across America. Now, this is fact. There were cargo ships, this has been reported and is written down, there are cargo ships that were coming into New York at this time. Now this is what I'm saying, what I said to start with. You can be a revived Christian yourself, but you can't do this. So these cargo ships are coming into New York. Within about two to three miles of coming towards New York City, people are starting to fall down on the decks under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And people were repenting and giving their lives to the Lord. They reckon that over a million people gave their lives to the Lord at that time. And it was, the Spirit of God was moving so powerfully that even during the Civil War, which happened about six years later, there, or six, seven years later, whilst they're on the battlefield aiming their musket guns at the op- op- opposition, People are being hit by the Spirit and repenting and giving their lives to God before they end up dying by being shot themselves. It is a miracle. And I don't care how revived we can be, you can't do that. This is something that comes about through God's Holy Spirit. Also around at that time, God raised up mighty men and women evangelists that were doing some incredible things. One of my favourites is Mariah Woodworth Etta. Has anyone heard of her? Oh man. I don't think actually there's anyone alive today that's ever come close to what she did in respect to the anointing that yeah yeah that's right yeah you're right she she was a woman in these days in the good old days women weren't allowed to preach you know there's that yeah he's awful that he's not really the room went core man could you feel the room then whoa (laughs) anyway so she was a woman, she, and she, no women weren't allowed to preach. And God said to her, I want you to preach the gospel. I'm not going to preach the gospel. And basically, God, you know what God's like when you don't say what you should do, and you know, things don't go so well for you. Anyway, she, she, she gave up, and she said, okay, God, I will take up the call. And she started out just preaching the gospel. And, you know, people were getting saved, and she started helping to get in these little tent crusade revival meetings and stuff. But then God started giving her these dreams and visions where like wheat sheaves would fall over and she didn't really understand what it was. And one of the strange manifestations of her ministry were that people would come and then some of them would literally just fall into trances. Whilst they're in a trance, they're being dangled over hell or they're getting visions of heaven. And then when they come out of those trances, man, they just give their lives to Jesus. And the anointing on this woman was so great, or the authority, that the, cat, the, the weight of what she was so, had was so great, that within, within 20 mile radius, people didn't even know she'd come to town. People were getting saved. 
People would be at nightclubs, whatever it wasn't equivalent to in those days, and they were getting convicted by the Holy Spirit and getting saved. Whenever she came to town, within a 20-mile radius, people were just getting saved and born again. People being convicted of their sins. People coming forward, massive rallies, massive people getting saved. Healings, miracles, signs and wonders. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Loads of these individuals popped up at that time, but there were some real big key ones. Uh, and uh, John Alexander Dowie was another one as well that sort of they both rose at the same time and that that brought about the whole healing ministry it had never been done before up until that time before then it was always evangelism and stuff but in the second awakening there was some signs and wonders and things going on that that if you were to read about them today you'd be like wow because none of us has ever seen anything like that on that scale none of us I mean I, I mean I've seen some stuff and I'm sure you've all seen some stuff but nothing like that yeah. Now this didn't come about because she was a revived individual and we all need to be revived. We all need to be on fire as we can humanly be. Amen. Amen. But when it comes to the spirit of God moving and causing people to fall down and give their lives to the Lord. I mean, I could tell you about you know, the Azusa Street revival or I could tell you about the Welsh revival or the, the, the Hebridean revival and things that went on up there. You know, in the Hebridean revival, I remember listening to, what was the name of the guy that was, was it Duncan or? Duncan Campbell, that's it, thanks you. Yeah. So I remember him telling this story about the glory of God, that's how he used to speak, falling in the town. And he was saying people, you know, the church was up there praying and worshipping God and praying for God to move by his spirit. Instantly, I think they've had eight revivals in the Outer Hebrides, which is just unfair. Um, but they pray for it. That's why they get what they pray for. You don't pray, you don't get. Right? So they were praying for it. Down in the village, people are just being hit by the spirit, convicted of their sins and falling down and crying out in the street, what must I do to be saved? And they all run up to the church because that's the only place they know where to go. <laughs> Open the door and there's all these people like, what on earth is, what are you doing in there? What's going on around here? Because the spirit of God was changing their lives. I had some friends, is there a trip coming in? Yeah. I had some friends. It's the anointing, go sit under it. It's under it. <laughs> I, had some, I, I knew some people that went and met some of the, uh, I wouldn't call them survivors, um, but the older people that had lived through one of those revivals. And, and they were still full of the glory of God. But they would say things like, you know, I would literally be trying to eat my breakfast and the glory of God would be so strong that I'd pass out and wake up literally in my breakfast cereal most mornings because they're just so consumed by the spirit of God and so in love with him but brothers and sisters this stuff doesn't come by just wishing it and willing it and wanting it and desiring it I've wished it willed it wanted it and desire it for most of my Christian life it comes by prayer and it comes when the church corporately come together yeah hallelujah and I believe that we're coming into a time now where the church, God is wanting his church to come to a place of prayer. But you see, there's things that I don't think, I think that modern Christians don't get, which is a bit sad. When I say modern, I mean modern, charismatic, evangelical. We've got a lot good going for us, but we also are lacking a lot of things. Because every time there was a move of God, we knee-jerked reaction against what was previously and we jettisoned everything to do with it away. So, so you had, in AD 1000, you had the Great Schism. So the Eastern Orthodox left the Catholic Church, okay? So, then you came to the Reformation. The Reformation got rid of anything to do with the Catholic Church. Well, not exactly, because the Lutherans were the first, so they, they're still kind of Catholic-y. But even then, they jettisoned a lot off. 
Then came the main Reformation. They jetsoned off an awful lot. Then you get to things like the Methodists, and they jetsoned off even more. And then you get back to, then you come to us, and with this little, itty bitty, thin veneer, we don't have a knowledge of church history. We don't understand that that church creeds uh, dealt with things like the Holy Trinity. I, I, I get really bemused by Christians that think, well, that, that it's up for grabs that we can discuss the Trinity. Like, well, I don't agree with the Trinity because dot, dot, dot. No disrespect, but nobody cares because it was dealt with and locked into the orthodoxy of the Christian faith thousands of years ago. Well, not thousands, but 1,800 years ago. It was dealt with, it was dealt with, and it was locked into orthodoxy, and that's it. It's not open for debate. You can't talk about it. You can't question it. That's it. But because we don't know that, we think everything, oh, and, and, and then came things like so, Sola Scriptura. And Sola Scriptura, I, I'm passionate about it in the sense I do believe it's by, you know, by God's word alone. But the problem with that is that the Reformation, I think, took it too far. See, with the Catholic Church, you had tradition and the word of God. But there, at the time of the Reformation, the tradition was high and the word of God was low. But what the Reformation did, it was all about the word but we're not going to have any of that tradition stuff. But mixed in with that tradition is all the things like the orthodoxy of the Christian faith. So we would, we jetsoned that off out the airlock. And so now we've got by, by scripture alone. And now we're having Christians making up 250,000 different denominations because we can't agree on simple things which the early church did agree on, worked out in creeds, and you don't have to work it out anymore. <sighs> <I don't know. laughs> So, as I've done my, my research around the church neighbourhood, and I look into, I'm a nosy Christian, I look into everyone's different backyards, you know, all of them. And uh, when I looked into certain backyards, I found this little thing here. This is called, well, I say little, it's part of, this is a four-volume set. This is the Liturgy of the Hours. Because I'm, I want to follow, well, see, what it is, is there's two types of prayer. There's praying in the church and praying with the church. Now, we're great at praying in the church, we, we can pray in tongues all day long. We can, we can pray together for each other and intercede and send up prayers to God throughout the day. That's praying in the church. But how often do you and I pray with the church? I.e. with millions of other Christians at the same time at certain points of the day. You know that you're praying exactly the same prayers. Irrespective of theological background. Because you don't have to agree with them because you're just praying the same prayers. You don't have to be in the same room with them. But when you're praying with the church, there is power in that as well. And I think that's one thing that's missing from, as we've jettisoned off all these things and we come to modern day evangelicalism, which is this thin veneer of what the ancient church is, I think we've lost a lot of things. And one of those things is this. And so I started with the temple, how the offerings were done at 9, 12, 3, etc. Well, this is called the Liturgy of the Hours. And so this follows the same principle. It says in the Psalms, David prayed seven times a day. And so the early mon uh, monasteries, etc., imitated seven times of prayer throughout the day. What do we pray? We pray loads of scripture. It's mostly Psalms, a good proportion of it. The Jewish people do it as well. We're just, they're just praying Psalms with some liturgical prayers, which are not dodgy. They're just prayers. Okay? Uh, they're not too weird people or you know, dead relics or anything. They're just prayers to God. Now, Think about that for a minute. If Christians all around Great Britain are praying the same prayer, the same psalms at certain points of the day, you might not feel it, but do you not think that must do something in the heavenlies? 
because it does. There's great power in it. And so when we're coming into these days where the church must pray more, I'm not just subscribing to let's all come together and just have all night revival prayer meetings, which we should do. I'm also subscribing that there should be not just that kind of prayer, but also as Christians, we need to be joining the wider church, irrespective of their denomination, because it doesn't matter, and actually start praying with our brothers and sisters. And what's great about this is what's three o'clock in this country isn't necessarily three o'clock in another country, but it means then throughout the time zone of the world, it means that the prayers of the saints are going up 24-7. And it's the same prayers of the saints that are going up 24-7. Where there is unity and unison, God, it commands a blessing. Hallelujah. I want my prayers to have the blessing of God on it. I want my prayers not to be just my prayers. I want my prayers to be the prayers of the passion of the church and going up to heaven. And so there's this echoing of sound and a chorus in heaven where they're all saying the same thing. Even though it's in different languages, even though it's coming in at different times of the day because of time zones, it's the same prayer for the day. And there's power in that. And I think, and so I've been modelling this in my life for a few years now, and, and it's been a real blessing to me. So I, I do all my crazy charismatic stuff, but I also have this because, and, and I, to be honest with you, there was a time, it was only like about six months ago, I thought, ah, oh, I'm not doing that anymore, it seems silly. I stopped it, right? And then I had a dream. And in the dream, the audible voice of God spoke to me, he said, I want you to pray with the church. And I woke up instantly and thought, sorry God. So, whip these out again. Is it um, the Coptic Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church that pray those prayers? Yeah, yeah, so the, yeah, so the, that's right. So the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church pray these also... And yeah, and the Anglican Ordinaria as well pray the same, similar sort of prayers and stuff uh, and all sorts. So basically the more traditional churches. Now you might think, oh, they're dodgy churches. But if you actually read what's in here, it's just, for the most part, it's 90, I'd say 95% scripture. And the, and the prayers that are written, I mean, I've gone through these books for several years now and I can't fault them. They're just scriptural prayers, you know, so that's it. Anyway, and finally I want to end with there are two types of prayers that we need to be mindful in our own life as well. This is a call for revival, but I want us to be careful as well. Because as charismatics, we're very good at what I call exhale prayers. But we're not very good at inhaling prayer. And what does that mean? You see, as a human being, you need to breathe out and you need to breathe in. I was, I was on a, a call to someone the other day. And he was talking to me and he was like, you know, our prayer life at our church is really good. We're all about pressing in, making the breakthrough. And, and, and it just sounded like effort, 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 which is fine. We need effort in prayer. But it's like, well, where's the rest in that as well? Because we're really good at pushing through, rending the heavens. But then there has to be a time in the rhythm of prayer where we, where we breathe in. And we be still and that we know that he is God. John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing God, the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is knowing God. And sometimes we have to stop and it's in the silence. As charismatics, we love noise, don't we? Have that worship on 24-7. Even, even in the silence, it's probably a bit of soaking music, right? we just can't do it. You know, there's some people are petrified of silence. Like, what, what do you think is going to happen? Someone's going to come out of the cupboard or something? I don't know. What do you think is going to happen? But just silence, nothing. Because you see, 
again, I was saying this this morning, we are, we as Pentecostals and Charismatics, we are programmed to think it's all about the externals. Oh, I feel the spirit on me today. And yes, you do feel him on the outside. But guess where else he lives? On the inside. These guys in the more traditional churches are actually really in touch with the spirit on the inside. Where us over here on the other side, we're really good at the spirit of God on the outside. But actually, God wants to blend the ancient with the modern, and that actually it is both. And what we can learn from is this rhythm of prayer where we learn to be silent, and we learn to feel and, and appreciate and have our understanding and experience of God, not on the outside because of soaking music and worship music, but through the silence and being in his presence of the reality that God is on the inside of you as well. And there's a whole load of theology we can go into on that, but we don't have time for. This prayer, this, this sermon today, is to stir us up. You know, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Now that's a challenge, right? How can you pray without ceasing? Well, actually, you can pray an awful lot. And with the body of Christ corporately, we can pray without ceasing. You know, pray in the Spirit. If you can't pray in the Spirit, you know, even like things like the Lord's Prayer... Oh, that's traditional liturgy. No, it's not. Jesus told you to pray. Whenever you pray, pray this. Okay, that's why in some denominations, before they even get to the prayers they want to say, they start with the Lord's Prayer, because the Bible says, whenever you pray, say this prayer. Um, and, you know, you could be doing that. You can pray in the Spirit. You could be watching a movie and going, you know, you can, you can, you can, because quite frankly, when you're praying in the spirit, your brain's not really doing much anyway. You could be reading a book and praying in the spirit. Anyone ever tried that? Reading a book and praying in the spirit? Yeah? Because a little bit more effort, but you can, you can do it, you know, but it works. You can really concentrate, you can actually hear your voice reading the words out loud as well whilst you're speaking. Exactly. See? See, if I pray in the spirit when I go to bed, wakes me up <laughs> so that's not a good idea for me <laughs> yeah otherwise I end up and the Holy Spirit he's not funny he's got he told me a few months back he said hey Chris me and you are going to do vigils soon like, vigils that's like late night prayer what? how are we going to do that oh man the amount of times that my four year old or whatever it is seven year old son comes in dad I can't sleep you know, waking me up at three or four o'clock in the morning and then lo and behold I can't sleep so I have to now pray in tongues until the sun comes up yay so I've been doing loads of things like that and God just telling me to pray for his church pray for his church pray for his church pray for his church not just you guys but the church of the UK God wants to do something remarkable and amazing in the church in the UK but it can't happen unless we pray Unless we intercede, unless we rend those heavens, unless we exhale and inhale the things of God. Amen. God bless you. Let's be stirred up to pray more. Amen. Amen.